Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Well, it has been quite a week, at least for me, if nobody else. We, um, I completed a seven-day fast, and my wife completed a five-day fast, and we basically led by example on our Facebook group uh, the number of people doing fast, anywhere from an intermittent fast of 12 hours. If they've never done that, that's a big deal, to a day, to two days, to three days, four days, five days. And I did seven days. And I wanted to talk about some of those experiences and what I've learned about that on a personal level. And then some studies came out this week, coincidentally, about the use of fasting. Shazam, the idea is passing around and getting around very quickly, even by the American Diabetes Association. Can you imagine that? Um, First, I want to fly back in time to fasting in general and a little bit of history of fasting. In our Facebook group, uh, we had talked about we're going to be doing a fast for probably a month before we actually did it. And for some people, they think it's a new thing, like it's never been uh, discussed before, like it was just discovered. Well, as has been mentioned on this particular podcast for a number of times, is that it goes back to well over 500 years BC with uh, Hippocrates, and I'm sure well before that. However, it wasn't really used for a lot of blood work, shall we say. Uh, The blood work caught up with the fasting. But there was a period called the Progressive Era, which was the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, in which there was a lot of fasting going on. This is the uh, era in which the the sanatoriums of Battle Creek, Michigan, got started with the Seventh-day Adventists and so on. Won't get into what the Seventh-day Adventists were about, but part of their program was fasting. And there was competing sanatoriums in that area as well. One was a, a Bernard, Bernard McFadden uh, who uh, had his own program and he was big into working out. He had his own following, a physique following. He had a magazine and he used fasting. And it was three day, three weeks of fasting, 21 days of fasting. And this was it. You know, they, they, they did exercises during the day. The people fasted for three days. And one of the, and I, I've covered this way back before in the evolution of the history of uh, fasting and the ketogenic diet, but I want to bring this up a little bit now. Uh, he used it for epilepsy and a number of things, uh, arthritis, epilepsy, and so on and so forth, and got great results. Consequently, an osteopath uh, came to find out what he was doing and started working with him, in essence, to be his uh, protege. So osteopathic medicine was pretty new back then. So anyway, so he established his practice there in Battle Creek, Michigan, with Bernard McFadden. This osteopath was Dr. Conklin. Dr. Conklin then was introduced to an attorney in um, New York, very successful attorney in New York, whose nephew had epilepsy, actually whose son had epilepsy. And he was very successfully treated with fasting. So with that, 
he happened to have a brother who, this is now turn of the century, thinks a pretty basic medicine is not real advanced. He had a brother at Johns Hopkins, which is a small medical school at the time. And he said, you know, I want you to find out if this is real or not, and what do we need to do about um, epilepsy and fasting? You know, tell me why it works. Well, they actually never found out why fasting works for epilepsy, and they still do not know how it works, fasting for epilepsy. But there began the beginning of the ketogenic diet. That was uh, Johns Hopkins got involved, and they were unique in having the first center for epilepsy. Uh, the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Wilder, uh, they were doing... This, so from 1910, from 19, 1900 to 1910, there was four or five books written on fasting, some better and some worse, some professionally done, some by lay. And post-World War II, it was implemented again, World War I, sorry, implemented again after 1918 and after the big Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, and that was at the Mayo Clinic with uh, Dr. Wilder and a few others. So... It is a direct ancestor, if you will, to the ketogenic diet. So when we talk about fasting and the ketogenic diet, they are kissing cousins, if you will. They are closely related. The um, term ketogenic diet came from Dr. Wilder because they discovered the one commonality people had when they fasted is they had, and they could identify then, this thing called ketones. They had a variety of ketones, predominantly one, that became more and more uh, measurable in their blood. So he simply said, coined the phrase, the, if we could have a diet that, that was, could emulate, could copy the fact that you, could, you know, inc- had, that you could have increased ketones in your blood, that would be a great thing. If you could have a ketogenic, a diet that makes ketones, that would be perfect. Why would that be perfect? Well, people wouldn't have to starve. Obviously, fasting can only go on so far, obviously. So in that became the genesis of the ketogenic diet. And from there, it's been been looked at 10 different ways. It's being tweaked. Uh, More and more subtle blood work is getting involved. And so we know more about it, but there's a lot that we don't know about it either. And... um, so I mentioned that, that if you were to go on and say Google or whatever, you'll find out there was a number of, a number of physicians that wrote books uh, or semi-physicians. Medicine, remember, was still, I think, pretty primitive at that time, but it was very popular. And it was even popular for type 1 diabetics and for type 2 diabetics until the world of medications came in uh, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s between the wars and World War II. So that's the beginning of this. So why would, so when we talk about fasting, the reason I say that, do not think of this as something new. So the idea of cessation of eating, but not of drinking, drinking water and so on, is not a new idea. But it is a little bit of a miracle still. You know, it is not ho-hum, gosh, you know, it's, it's so old, it must not be effective. It's one of those few things that you can reach across the ages and do something extremely effective. And so off the cuff, what are some of the most effective? Why would you do this as an average person, you know, as a non-sick person? Some of the, the 
wouldn't have to travel all the way to Battle Creek, Michigan and join a sanatorium and, and do all the things that they did in addition to the fasting. Why would you just do this in your own home? Um, one of the, um, I guess the nub of it, the, the number one thing is that you're resensitizing your whole uh, glucose, insulin, glucagon system in your body. And some people will simply say you're resensitizing your insulin. So for those who are what they call insulin resistance, this insulin resistant mean that uh, you are slow to produce insulin for a given amount of a given level of glucose in your, in your in your blood. You might have you compared to me might have a much higher level of glucose. Your hemoglobin one A C would be. You know, the average of a three-month uh, blood glucose readings, yours would probably be a lot higher than mine. For your your insulin is getting tired, it's getting fatigued, it's getting slow to respond, and uh, more of it has to be secreted to get down your insulin levels to normal levels. And eventually, your pancreas gets fatigued, and your insulin becomes less effective. So your glucose levels start to rise, and so as we see those glucose levels rising, your hemoglobin 1AC levels, those averages start to rise, we are actually saying indirectly you have insulin resistance. And there's other ways to measure this as well. And none of them are that precise, but we're talking about the same interface. So what does fasting have to do with that? So I'm going to park that. Now you know it's about insulin sensitivity. Just leave it at that. We are going to fine tune your insulin sensitivity. Well, anywhere from fasting for, I'd say, 12 hours, which most people do in their sleep, absolutely without food, is obviously a good thing. Fasting for a whole day, fasting for a couple days. And I've talked, obviously, fasting, I've talked about fasting a couple of podcasts uh, previous to this. But what you are actually exercising, if you're not eating anything, you're not taking in any carbohydrates, obviously. You're not taking in any protein. And so... There's no exogenous, there's no oral sources, no food sources for your glucose. Your glucose is only going to be produced from your liver through gluconeogenesis, through your glucagon uh, process and sensitivity. So your insulin kind of gets a rest. You, know, you're, it's, you only have one source of, of glucose coming. It's just from what your body's making. And you'll always be able to make enough glucose for yourself. I mean, until, I mean, that's how people can fast for, for three weeks is they are making their own glucose. They're making their own glucose from their liver, from their body's reserves. Eventually, you, you obviously will start to death and die, but you can go for very long periods of time. It used to be said that you could only fast for, you could starve fast, it's kind of a, you can use those two words in this, in this sense, for a month before you died. Well, it varies a lot. They've even had with a little help, like of a multiple multiple vitamin, and given enough fluids to drink, uh, there's documentation that people have uh, fasted for over a year, if you can imagine. Obviously, they had enough body fat, so they had the caloric reserves to be able to do that, the fat reserves to be able to do that. But for the average person, whether it's intermittent fasting, and so my definition of intermittent fasting is not long fast. It's uh, usually half a day, maybe up to a day, I would say it's intermittent. Technically, the words intermittent is not continuous. So whether you did a day fast uh, once a week, uh, a couple times a week, three times a week, 
all that falls under the name of intermittent fasting. So it's kind of a vague reference. For better or for worse, it's a vague reference. And uh, you have to s specify after you say intermittent fasting, what is the kind of fasting and how long did you do it? So a lot of research is coming through by saying, this is actually a good thing. And uh, before I get to my experience, because I uh, did a spreadsheet on me, because I want to see my data as well, is that a couple of studies came out this week, which are really pretty cool. One was, can you imagine from the, uh, well, let's start with Medscape, which is a very conservative source of medical articles. And basically it's, it's, it's a blog uh, with the, uh, in, in the guise of trying to be more authoritative than others, but it's, it's, they had lost a lot of credibility in my, my eyes. So every so often it comes up with something pretty decent. And this is, uh, of this week, October 17th, it says intermittent fasting can reverse type two diabetes in some cases. This came from Canada. And this was a case of three type two diabetics. They had fasted either on alternative days or three times weekly. And all of them, this is a small group of people, it wasn't a mass, massive uh, group of people, all three people could just get off their insulin. So they got off all their medications, their hemoglobin 1AC uh, dropped, and which is an average. So these, they were followed by, I think they were followed for six months. And uh, their blood pressure dropped and basically all was good. Um, I'll leave a post to this for the details. I'm not here to go through all those details, but the fact that the Medscape uh, was showing that you can reverse type 2 diabetes. Now, for anybody who's been following Verta Health, you'll know that on a much larger scale of people, they reversed diabetes in 1,000 people two years ago, and it's an ongoing of a five-year study of their process. So in their first year, they showed you can reverse diabetes. So in their second and third and fourth and fifth year, who knows what they're going to show? I mean, they have a whole nother rung of hormonal changes and so on that um, they'll follow up on. So another article came out in the journal of uh, uh, the BMJ, British Medical Journal. And that this is a study, again, from Canada, from Dr. Jason Fung's um, office and uh, Megan Ramos. Now... Um, this is there's a little special introduction because you might remember that so Jason Fung's a nephrologist. He's a kidney doctor, and he's worked in various areas, and he's now a very uh, public, uh, very famous public speaker on the ketogenic diet. Uh, I didn't know he started off that way, but uh, his story into it is very interesting. So he he basically settled down in Toronto and had his practice, and so he was basically seeing patients with kidney disease, kidney problems. Uh, his researcher slash, uh, I think, office manager, um, Megan Ramos, had her own issues. And she says, you know, I want to fast. And uh, I want you, to, you, Jason Fong, to guide me through it. And he said, I've never done that before. So she, through her inspiration, uh, did her own fast. They documented it. And now they offer uh, fasting is a therapy for a lot of their patients because it has a lot of benefits. And so they, they watch them some very closely and some don't have to watch that that much at all. You know, they give them a, here's your pamphlet. This is what you need to do. Call us if you have any questions. I'll see you in six weeks. See you in a week. However, they want to line it up. But it's such a part of their therapy. And for some, they describe Canada, certainly Toronto, which I had lived and went to the University of Toronto uh, Toronto is more of a polyglot than it was a melting pot, meaning you have all these different ethnic corners 
uh, neighborhoods. And so there's a lot of ethnicities that are already familiar with fasting through their culture, through the religion, through whatever. So it wasn't that hard for a lot of people, they say, to implement it or to regenerate that idea that this is something worth doing. So uh, they did. The, they showed the same thing. They had, I believe it's five patients. I'll put a list of this particular study on the show notes as well. And what was interesting, they said therapeutic fasting is defined as the con- as as the controlled involuntary abstinence from all calorie containing food and drinks for a specified period of time. Pretty straightforward. This differs from starvation, which is neither deliberate nor controlled. So there's a volition part of that definition. And what they found here is that, let's see if I got this, they, um, they chose different, so this is intermittent fasting now. So they chose uh, patients that are the patients in this particular study range from 16-hour fast to several-day fasts and done on a repetitive basis. And they found days to cessation of getting off all their meds where some patients got off all their insulin or diabetic medications in five days that was the minimum number of days and the maximum number of days of getting off all diabetic medications was 18 so someplace between five and 18 days is the average that's amazing call it two weeks and that would actually be on the high side of the average so that's pretty profound it's not profound in the sense that it's never been done before. It's profound in the sense that it's been documented and it's now uh, easily accessible. So you'll, you'll see this. I hope you'll be interested. It's not very arcane. It's not big, hard words to read. You don't need to be a doctor to understand this. It's, it's, it is what it is. You should be able to understand it. And in your mind, I hope that this is support for you to put that into your future. So now let me also tell you what I did in our Facebook group as I sort of gave a historical posting of various famous people that did fast or wrote about fast and a little bit of their life. And uh, probably the father of fasting in the United States is a, is a man named Dr. Um, Drewy. And he was the Surgeon General for the United States back in the early 1800s. And he went back into practice and he became a fasting sort of guru. And what was interesting, he was the first one that proposed the best thing you could do to have a better healthy life was not to have breakfast. So he was the skip breakfast is the best thing you could do for your life. That was his summary. So if you and he if he wanted to be memorized, remembered for one thing, that would be it. He was the doc that said skip breakfast. It's the best thing. Well, it's interesting. Now you bring that up in today's that concept of skipping breakfast. They consider that a biohack. Like that's such a new idea. Wow, that is so so cool. That is just the edge of the edge of the edge, and you're doing, you're doing something. Dot dot dot. Two hundred years old. So I, I hope I've gone over this. That it is actually very old, and it is very doable, and and there's a lot of benefits. And let's say you're asking yourself, "Well, I'm not a diabetic. I'm I have arthritis, or I have a GI problem. I have." this, that, or the other thing, you're going to find across the board from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid or osteoarthritis to certainly Crohn's and ulcerated colitis. Um, All of these are going to get better. Will they slide back a little bit? It depends what you do on the other side of the fast, but I would say you'll see an improvement and not eating is not the answer. 
not eating fasting, which gives you, you can say organ rest. Think of all the organs that don't have to work. Your, your, your entire gut does not have to work. It gets a break. If it's a break for a day, it's a break. If it gets a day for five, uh, break for five days, it's a rest. For seven days, in my case, it's a rest. And there is something to just not having been used that allows it to recuperate. So called, we generally refer to that as organ rest. And organ rest is a big deal. However, in addition to that, if you were to measure people's markers as they go, you'll find that their um, high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein marker, which is kind of the now the universal marker for how much inflammation is going on, that it drops like a stone. So now you have this peace and quiet that sort of invades the body for all organs and things just slow down and they become uninflamed. And a lot of that, if not all of that, has to do with, you can say, either carbohydrates or your glucose levels, which are pretty interchangeable, but they're different. One's a, one's a, a blood test and the other is what you eat, okay? But this is what we're talking about. So when you drop your long-term uh, glucose levels and hold them there for a while, your inflammation drops down. So the various conditions you have that are bothering you personally, that you're probably over-medicated on, uh, will also drop down. So that's why it's a minor miracle. And that's why from way back in, since time immemorial that uh, people got better. So I, I hope you hear that. So now, one more little story, and it's a little bit on the dark side, about fasting. I've said it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. Everybody can do it. You can do a little piece. You can do an intermittent fasting. You can do a, um, last podcast we talked about um, Walter Longo's and his research about a modified fast for five days, once a month, three months in a row, help for autoimmune conditions. And I should have put that in a list of things that got better as well, but in autoimmune conditions. And we talked about stem cells and decrease of IGF, of growth hormones and IGF-1, and then the increasing when you get off the fast. And all these factors have to play into why things get better long-term after the fast, providing you don't go back to eating crap. Okay, so... That's all good. So now the dark side is, and I've learned my experience has been through a couple of things. My experience has been through uh, some former patients. You have to be careful what you say. You have to be careful what you recommend. And uh, in our coaching group that we had after the coaching group was pretty much over, somebody decided to go on a fast because I illustrated the benefits of fasting. And unbeknownst to me, this person goes on a fast first time ever for 10 days. And, and I said, be careful how you come off it, you know, come off it little by little. So the point is that certain people can be attracted to the concept of fasting if they have an eating disorder. Now, I don't know for sure if the person had an eating disorder, but uh, this is well documented. It's, you know, so if you're dealing with people or patients or friends that are, have anorexia, anorexia nervosa, and you're saying, hey, fasting is like they will probably come to fasting like uh, moss to light at night. I mean, it's it's they'll glom onto it. They'll definitely do it. And 
for those particular types of people, it may not be a great idea because they'll probably go longer. They probably won't uh, get back to eating food regularly. I mean, there's other issues there. So you have to be careful who does this. And um, I think there's a big dark side for fasting with people with eating disorders. You can induce various nutrient deficiencies, which they probably already have, um, given their predisposition of an eating disorder. And you will just exacerbate that. So that's the dark side. There's also some examples through history in this period of 1900 to the 1910. There's one woman who had a, we'll call it, a, it was a health treatment, a health treatment facility in uh, rural Washington state. And she was pretty famous and had a lot of cures, but she would go too long and some people died from over fasting. So there's a point of a, a little is good, a lot is not better. And the idea of doing a little intermittently, intermittent fasting, irregularly, it's a great way to great way to reset yourself, to come back and to, to clean yourself up. Uh, a current reference might be sort of a, how people look at detox nowadays. I'm going to detox myself. I think that's such an ignorant thing to say nowadays um, because people do it wrong and they hurt themselves for the most part. But the idea that you're letting your body catch up, you're letting your body have a rest, um, it's a real therapeutic process within limits that should be looked at. And yeah, it takes a little bit of a discipline. So now you have the background on fasting um, and that you've, you've had before, but now you know that it's now hitting, hitting the news. I mean, we have it in Medscape, um, the ADA, um, the, the study from Dr. Fung, and there's been other studies, and certainly you've had uh, not so much intermittent fasting with the Verda uh, health people, but pretty close. Okay, so let's go to my experience. So my experience, um, I didn't start off thinking about seven days. You know, I, um, in in the Facebook, the nice thing about the Facebook, and uh, we, we don't have a large Facebook group, nor do I have a desire to have a large Facebook group. We have about 600 people in it. And I'd rather have a place with sincere questions that I can answer and not a popularity contest and certainly not people posting their favorite little supplement. You know, they get kicked out in a, in a New York second. Um, but so there was many people that were doing this fast so we could share this conversation and hear what their situations were as we started the fast. I told, I made, made a spreadsheet that people could use and sort of to emulate what I was doing. And then uh, I just think documentation is everything. I think it's good to document your numbers every so often, but don't have your life be about documenting numbers. You know, just a period of time. So this was a period of time to document numbers. I'm not doing it anymore. But what I did do is that for the most part, I took my glucose, uh, ketones, and then I did um, a formulation called the glucose, glucose ketone index, which was a, a concept thought up by uh, Thomas Seyfried, who's the author of Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, seen him present a number of times. He's at Boston College, and he's the one that, um, in my view, is a legend for his concept of applying the ketogenic diet, a calorie-reduced ketogenic diet, to cancer. And now they're finding this as a, a big, it's a big help. And there's a lot of research that has yet to be done, so I can't give you a black or white, like, 
absolutely is the way to go. And there's a variety of cancers, as we all know. But it is the opposite of thinking you have cancer because you have some sort of uh, special genetic predisposition. That may or may not be true, but this is across the board, basically shutting down the fuel that cancer grows on, which is glucose, and forces these patients into a ketogenic diet, calorie-reduced ketogenic diet, and does a few other things. But anyway, he came up with the idea and the formula of a glucose ketone index, which is a weighted index between your two fuels your mitochondria uses. Your mitochondria uses glucose or it uses ketones fats. So what I did in my spreadsheet, I did my glucose numbers, my ketones, and then I plugged in the formulation. And by the way, I will also put in a link so you can look up the uh, GKI, we'll call it. It's very easy. It's actually a live little plug in your numbers and it'll calculate you for you. So, you know, my, and my, my uh, time markings were 30 minutes after I woke up, uh, after a morning workout, which would put it around 11 o'clock, between 10 and 11 o'clock, and then just after midday, and then uh, late afternoon. So I wasn't, I wasn't anally uh, perfect about this. In other words, there's some gaps in times periodically. But when I started out, my first one was after a morning workout was 114 for glucose, 0.3 of ketones in my GKI was 15. I know it's an arbitrary number to you, but what I thought was interesting is I continued documenting through the seven days, my each subsequent reading, my numbers dropped down. So I went, that was my highest glucose readings after working out. And I worked out with fasting throughout the seven days that my GKI was the most consistent for continual progress. So I started at 15 by that afternoon I was down to 3.1, and it took, oh, about two days until I was under one. And then uh, by the end of my seven days, my GKI was 0.43. So what is good? What is bad? Well, according to the person who created it, uh, Dr. Thomas Sedfried, that uh, one is sort of the ideal. You're looking for a one. So it's interesting. So I put that out and had these numbers. I also made another column every so often I would do blood pressure. How's my blood pressure doing? I'm, I have no, I'm not on any medications by the way. And I take very, very little in the way of supplements primarily because I'm a somewhat lazy. I spent 16 years in the whole supplement world of naturopathic medicine and with patients. I'm uh, just tired of having to lead lives dependent on supplements. I think you just need a few over for a specific reason for a specific period of time and uh, we'll get into supplements another time, but I take very few, maybe vitamin D, fish oils, and you can guess the rest of the list, but we'll be more specific later. And so my blood pressure, even after working out, went from the 120s over 80 to the end of the fast. I was kind of consistently 115 over 75. So it's not a dramatic difference because I wasn't very high to start with, but in my beats per minute, my pulse, went from an average of 80s down to an average of, of the low 50s. And I was one of the fluids I was drinking was coffee. So if I had already had three cups of coffee, you can bet that would affect my blood pressure. 
So just want to explain how I did my spreadsheet and some of the numbers that I thought were interesting. So you can see this progression and the GKI was the only one that was that consistent. In other words, my ketones obviously got higher and higher and higher, but they sort of went up and down on a daily basis. You know, they were higher in the morning, um, actually lower in the morning, and then, and then uh, uh, let me see, they're higher in the morning, then lower, then higher again. But the only number that was consistent in looking at that ratio between glucose and ketones was the GKI. So I'm um, a real believer in the GKI. Not that you need to live your life by that this particular ratio, but it tells you what's going on. This gives you an insight. And for some of you, for some of you, you're thinking, oh, what a pain it is to have to, you know, get a lancet, go into those glucometers and ketometers, and prick your fingers. This is a total luxury to be able to do that. You know, ten years ago, it was not this convenient for both of these things. And so it wasn't this convenient and something you could do at home and do your own spreadsheet. So I think it's a minor miracle and I think it's a real insight. So what did I get out of this? So I got my own document. My days are behind me. It's just two days ago I stopped. Things like sleep got a lot better. It's it's funny how the, the dreams you have, it was like going to the movies. I swear it was like going to the movies. And, you know, um, uh, in terms of uh, gastrointestinal sort of follow-up. Not that I was irregular before, but um, I'm sort of a zero-carb guy, meaning I have very little in the way of vegetables now. Then my uh, stools changed in the course of in the course of this post the fast. I'm sure they'll go back the way I had it, but even as much as as, as healthy as, as I thought I was, you get to see these changes that kind of come back to a normal, healthy way of doing it. So I'm a big believer in fasting. It's a reset. So if you think of nothing else, it's a reset. Do you have to go for seven days? No. Do you have to go for five days? No. Um, the questions that I am left with at this point is, well, how much of a fast do you have to do in terms of a complete fast? There's a concept out there called protein sparing fast, and it's Actually, not what it sounds like. It's a um, a calorie reduced fat down to about 800 calories a day. Um, what another thing that I did on my fast is that I didn't. If I was not feeling comfortable, I would give in to having a scoop of mayo. And you now know my mayo, which is there's obviously eggs and mayo, a little vinegar and mayo, uh, a little collagen, and there's a bunch of C8. So if I would have, I would add some C8 to some mayo, stir it up in a little. Uh, bowl, and I would have that. That would take the edge off if I was feeling uncomfortable. So I had those breaks, and sometimes I'd put a little C8, I'm talking twice in the whole week, oil into my coffee, and that would sort of give me a, a softer moment if I felt like, oh, I'm thinking I'm going to break the fast right now. I'm just, you know, either a total boredom or whatever. Uh, it put me back in the game and allowed me to go on to seven days. So I think that's a big deal. And um, so that presents a question, you know, when you're looking at Walter uh, Longo's work, you know, he had a pretty robust diet. You know, it certainly wasn't hard. He has a whole system of selling foods to people to do this. I think you can do it for yourself. But, and it is a lot easier to eat something versus eating nothing. But once you start eating something, you then do have to monitor that you don't exceed a little bit. So... I'm questioning how much of a little bit could you have on a regular basis? I'm not quite sure if I I want to have a little bit for seven days. Uh, it almost gives you more things to measure than you really want to measure. 
But that's the question that comes up. Maybe you do not have to be on 100% no food diet as austere as that sounds, you know, for the duration. Maybe you can have a little bit as it goes on. Um, how was fasting when I was working out? Fasting actually and working out wasn't bad at all. It was only on my seventh day that I, sixth or seventh day that I was doing cardiovascular. Before that, it was all um, weightlifting. It was all resistance training. And I have a pretty specific workout for each day that I rotate through the next day, the next day, the next day. So that was my experience in fasting. It was a total reset. So what do I get out of it now? Do I feel my visions improve? Do I feel my moods better? Um, well, it took, and how did I come out of it? I, I came out of my fast by having a very little bit to eat. And this is actually another good point. So the trick of coming out of the fast, it's not so much have protein, have fats, have carbs, don't have carbs, or you do have very few carbs. It's, it's really about the amount have very little. So I made myself up some scrambled eggs with a little chopped up salmon and maybe a couple tablespoons of that. And then uh, an hour or so later, I had a couple tablespoons of that again. Uh, and then I had maybe a third of my regular dinner by that night. So, but starting small is important. A lot of people that go right into a meal, they're going to go, oh my gosh, uh, this has been too much. The risk really isn't that large with a seven day fast. Anybody who fasts for five days or under, it's a moot point. You pretty much can do what you want, but the the general idea is you start small. You have a small little meal. And if you're fasting for a week or two or three for 21 days, and you really have to think about how you're going to wake your body up and remind it that, duh, actually, you have to digest what I eat. I eat, you digest. We're going to start doing it little by little. You bring it back online. Um, and so the trick is you start small and as much as you might have ended up being hungry by the end of whatever your fast is, um, you'll find that your, um, hunger disappears very quickly after that first bite or two of food. So it's easy to get over. So, um, what I wanted to mention is through the end of world war two, they discovered this thing called the refeeding syndrome. So it was both in the concentration camps when they um, released everybody from the concentration camps, came back in and they brought in food to these concentration camp survivors. And also there was towns throughout Europe that had been equally starving, but they weren't in concentration camps because of the war. And when the allies came in with all their food and everything, um, that that they found that a number of these people that have been starving for a while, well over three weeks and so on, and maybe they were just eating very little, is that they ate themselves to death. Now, they did not eat themselves to death because they were gluttonous, that they, they ate so much. They ate themselves to death because they had too much initially. And uh, I'm not going to go into all the biochemistry, but what it is is that your electrolytes you're already obviously very deficient, right? So you've been starving for months, so you're deficient in pretty much everything. And so your cellular metabolism is just hanging on. So now you have food and you're forcing your system to take care of, and you're having too much food to suddenly take care of your digestive processes. And in, in this, I'm paraphrasing this to keep it pretty simple, is that it basically abandons your, your phosphorus and, and, and your phosphorus and other electrolytes kind of 
abandon your cellular functions and they go to start taking care of digestion and uh, people die very quickly. So that's what they call refeeding syndrome. And so if someone's going to go willy-nilly on fast and they think they're going to go out three weeks because they're so super disciplined and or they have a predisposition, as I mentioned before, to an eating disorder, then they really have to think about how are they going to come back into the real world of eating again and address the refeeding syndrome. How are they going to refeed themselves? So... Um, I'll leave it at that for my summary of thoughts. I hope you got something out of this. I hope you really do consider fasting. I mean, feel free to join our Facebook group and join us next time. People who just got started this time through are saying, let's go do it again. Um, I do find a seven-day fast rather onerous. Um, It's full of a lot of information. I mean, you you document your own numbers as you go and your ketometer and your glucometer, et cetera, et cetera. But I wouldn't do this every week. I... I, I think uh, where I'm headed with this, and I think where most, most people should be headed with it, they should get their own data. So they should start, get their own data, see what's happening, maybe work themselves up to a five-day fast with their own data, do that for a couple times. And then they might think of a longer fast that's a modified fast. You know, what if they did have a tablespoon or three of, you know, of... Um, uh, mayo or something like that with a C8, something was enough to keep them going. And they had their bone broth and they had their, you wouldn't really need and have your salt. So your salt's obviously one of the things that's uh, necessary to have. So you're having your fluids, you're having your salt, having a little bone broth. Uh, you can sustain and then a little food. So you can create whatever that little food's going to be, but you really keep your calories pretty doggone, doggone low. Um, I think you might get the east, the same effects as a full fast. I don't know that for an answer, but I know that it is remarkable. And it's an, a very healthy thing to do in terms of resetting your blood sugar levels, uh, resetting your, you're giving your pancreas a rest, you're giving your liver a rest, you're giving the rest. Um, that sort of organ reserve is another reference we use, is very healthy. So this intermittent fasting, whether it's a five-day fast once a quarter, a modified five-day fast once a quarter, uh, as I referenced before with uh, Dr. Longo's work, Longo's work, um, five-day fast, modified five-day fast, once a month for three months, basically abolish a number of immune conditions to an extent, certainly the symptomology of that. So hope you appreciate that. I hope you dig in, you consider it. It's, it's not insignificant. It's uh, an ancient therapy, but now it's gaining a lot of recognition. Okay, with that, I just want to say, keep your questions coming in. I will get to them inch by inch by inch, you know, question by question by question. Uh, if you have, for those of you are listening the first time, it's Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So it's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at ketonaturopath.com. Look forward to your questions and have a good week. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.